Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. All right, we've got a special two-parter for you today. Rebecca and I are going to kick off, um, as we said, talking about David Chang's memoir, Eat a Peach. And then after in the back half of the show, or the last piece of the show, um, I just recorded with Jen Northington, uh, our reactions to the Dune trailer, so you can stick around for that too. There's also, we talk about um, an SFF Yeah episode she and Sharifa did on Dune earlier with an author that's really good and some other pieces you're going to want to check out there. So we had a good time talking about Dune. Um, uh, if you don't, if you don't have any interest in Dune and you're not going to stick around for that, I, we did ask there if you've seen the Dune trailer, but have no relationship to Dune, I would love to know your reactions to what the hell you thought you were looking at when you looked at the Dune trailer. <laughs> Cause uh, like we talked about the princess bride last time, like I'm so, I'm so in with Dune since I was a young reader that I can't even see it you know, what looks, seems cool or weird or interesting about it other than the, the, the adaptation choices they're making there. Um, let's get into talking about David Chang, but before, before we do that, uh, let's take a sponsor break. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo. This is one I'm actually super excited about. I liked Lee Bardugo's other adult fantasy books, and so I'm really looking forward to this one. It's set in the Spanish Golden Age during a time of high-stakes political intrigue and glittering wealth. It follows Luzia, a servant in the household of an impoverished Spanish nobleman who reveals a talent for little miracles. Her social climbing mistress demands Luzia use her gifts to win over Madrid's most powerful players, but what begins as simple amusement takes a dangerous turn. Luzia will need to use every bit of her wit and will to survive, even the help of Guillén Santangel, an immortal familiar whose own secrets could prove deadly for them both. So The Familiar by Lee Bardugo is on sale now. And like I said, it's a must read of the season. It's perfect for anyone who loves history, a little bit of magic, a lot of danger. You can get your copy now at LeeBardugoTheFamiliar.com. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of The Familiar by Lee Bardugo for sponsoring this episode. All right, Rebecca. I think that the, this is interesting because I reminded you that this was coming out, and then you read it first and told me it was interesting. So then I picked it up. So we're kind of ping ponging back and yeah. it's kind of a, a feedback loop of interest of, of Chang in this book, um, Eat a Peach. Yes, that's. I think that is what happened. You had it on our fall preview, yeah. and that reminded me, like, oh, right, I do want to read this book. And then I remembered that I had a digital galley of it. And I think I started it maybe that same day or, like, the next day. Mm. And within a couple of pages was texting you, like, oh, yeah, this is the thing that we were hoping it would be. Uh, yeah. So I'm glad that we've completed the feedback loop. At least one full cycle, and now we're here. <laughs> and now we're here at the end of the beginning with our relationship um, with Edith Peach by David Chang. I'm not really sure. I've got I got several notes that that aren't really you know things I want to talk about in particular. I guess we should come at it maybe in talking about you know our understanding of David Chang before we read page one of this that even got us interested in David mm. Chang. I don't have frankly much of a relationship with him at all as as a person out in the world. 
if anything, it was slightly negative from some bro-y kind of yeah. discourse. And his affect, it, Momofuku opened when Michelle and I were still living in New York, and it was a big thing, and we were having kids, and we just never got there. So I was resentful of it in that regard. Like, this is a thing that's happening that's very exciting, and people really like it, and I'm not going to go to it because it takes forever, as it talks about here, the reservations and lines out the door and so forth and so, so on and so forth. But I think what's interesting is, unlike Bourdain or some of the other books we've done, like... I was living my life as an adult as these things were happening. It's, that's, I'm now entering that stage of my life where people are writing memoirs about times in which I was an adult, which is kind of weird. <laughs> it is uh, weird. So there's that. How about what's, what's your what's coming up from the starting gate? What was your um, Chang yeah, angle? You know, I, oh, my Chang angle. Um, you know, I have some affection for David Chang that I think over the years I've had different relationships to that affection, including like feeling guilty about it or maybe feeling a little bit like the internet might judge me mm. if they knew. Um, but precisely because of some of that bro-y stuff that's been out there. And it does seem, and I think the book like really sheds a lot of light on the origins of this, but like he projects a certain image or he's like trying, sometimes he can come off like he's trying to like be, you know, a certain way yeah. and be kind of, it seems like he could be kind of a jerk um and without any backstory it's easy to like write that off but i've had a, i've just i've enjoyed watching him um i didn't know much about his restaurants until i started seeing him pop up on like food tv yeah. and then i had a subscription to lucky peach magazine for a couple of years and was like oh who is this david chang guy who's associated with all these great food writers and sort of i so i came at it from the other side like i didn't really know of him until he was famous um, and then i knew of him as like the guy behind you know chef's table and the guy behind mind of a chef or like one of the one of the guys behind chef's table the guy behind mind of a chef um has done a lot of interesting food stuff and then like you know recently he had a netflix series called breakfast lunch and dinner where he got to like travel around hanging out with his celebrity friends eating different foods mm. and, like there's one in vancouver where he and seth rogan like get stoned out of their minds and go to the donut shop and like watch them glaze the donuts and it's kind of like the platonic ideal of like broy food television that you're not supposed to like, but was it's just like irresistibly charming in its own way. Yeah. Um, so I've really been looking forward to this. I think also because I knew that he had a relationship with Bourdain and he is a younger, he's of a younger generation who dealt with some of the same issues um, that Bourdain dealt with. And I was hoping that there would be like some good meat on the writerly bones. And I know we talked in the preview show about, you know, anticipating that he would turn out to be like a good writer in the way that Bourdain and Edward Lee um, are also, you know, food people who are good writers. And that, that was borne out for me. So that was a very long answer that I think already betrays some of my, yeah, you know, that, no, that's good. He's a compl I mean, look, he's a complicated figure. He's a complicated person. His relationship to himself is complicated and it's manifested textually in a lot of interesting ways as sort of mm -hmm. my English professor brain was very yeah. interested in which get into it in a minute. I, you know, I, I guess that one way of saying is that do I, do I, am I more or less interested in David Chang after reading Edith Peach unequivocally more um, mm -hmm. and differently? Um, you know, I don't know it. I don't think it bears up. It, it's not poorly written. It's well written of a kind. It's straightforward. It's honest. It's not beautiful. It has a co-writer, um, so I don't know how much Gabe Ulla gets credit for structure. David Chang mm -hmm. also repeatedly and vociferously thanks a friend of his named Chris Ying for feedback. So, mm -hmm. you know, there, in, in a lot of ways, Chang chefs, uh, uh, good ones, or at least as, as I understand it, good ones, are collaborators, especially if you're running multiple restaurants across. You can't do it all yourself. So you're more willing to and interested in and maybe conditioned to get feedback yeah. and um, assistance and help. So it's more of a collective idea here than maybe because even the cover designer gets shout outs the introduction as a table setting <laughs> is very much you know a mood setter and that chang is very self-reflexive um about you know how to market this book and it reflects something about how he does and doesn't under understand himself he says at the top i've never understood my appeal which is the kind of thing that can seem cloy it can see like a humble brangle uh -huh. brag type of thing and I think initially that is an entirely appropriate reaction, but he's, I think by the end he does the work of untangling how that can, is not disingenuous. Did, did you buy that yeah. kind of a move? Is that indicative I of totally, your experience? 
Yeah, I totally bought that as well. And I, I think you're right about the collaborative nature of the writing. And I think it's the I came away with a real admiration for the quality of his thought and self reflection that he talks throughout about uh, liking feedback and liking to collaborate. That's one of the things that's great about kitchens and also working with these other writers and artists um, that I walked away from it, like really understanding not just why we have complicated reactions yeah. to David Chang, because he is a complicated person who seems to contradict himself in many ways. And he's, but he's so aware of it. Like this is, I was really, I've read it twice now. Cause I read it once mm. before I, you know, I live texted you <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> um, and then I revisited it over the weekend and I came away from it thinking like, this is just a good memoir. Like this is less a food book. It's less a food or cooking memoir than a lot of the other yeah. um, food and cooking memoirs that I love. But I think that that separates it some from the pack that he happens to have had this career that he's had in kitchens. And that's important for, the ways that his personality and his conflicts like manifested themselves in kitchens and in those team settings. But there's like a version of the universe where David Chang like exercises these same demons out in like a corporate setting or, you know, in some other or like being on some other kind of team um, where the food is much more integral to like the Bourdain's writing. Yeah. It's just an interesting difference. I I did find, I mean, and we do get Chang, um, relating his last sort of significant inner exchange with Bourdain, mm-hmm. which is the, the kind of thing you imagine you'd want to do with Bourdain, right? Was hang out at his local and talk for yeah. four hours and get drunk and then eat something else. And I think in that moment, it's so indicative. I, I guess I can't help but thinking, I wish we got whatever this book would have been mm-hmm. if Bourdain had written it for himself. That, that's yeah. the thing that was always withheld in Bourdain. We talked about it before. One of the reasons I think everyone, including us, were so surprised um, by by the nature of his death and what came out after was he didn't do this that Chang is doing here because there's a version of Chang that is Bourdain and wrestling mm-hmm. with uh, orthogonal demon show title, but they're not quite the same or maybe they're, I don't even know. We don't know, actually. I don't know yeah, if they're it's... the same or not, but the kind of revelation, the kind of honesty, the kind of... Uh, I guess it's not honesty because it's not that Bourdain lying. The transparency, the the, mm-hmm. the the vulnerability that for Bourdain was more performative and superficial. Um, and he, there there was he would let you in a couple of doors, but not all the way in. With Chang, you get a few doors deeper into the house. I think that's yeah. fair to say. I I can't remember if I said it to you like offline or on a previous show when we were talking about this, but it it this book immediately felt to me like it kind of picks up where Bourdain left off, but is also the kind of memoir that I wish Bourdain had had experiences that would have allowed him to like to live long enough and have that kind of like, this is, this is kind of alternate universe for Bourdain Mm. to like, what if David or what if Anthony Bourdain had gone into therapy with a good therapist in his mid twenties, you know, like what we're getting in this memoir is the product of 20 years of Chang having professional, guidance in mm-hmm. thinking about himself and understanding himself and understanding how he's he's diagnosed with bipolar disorder and understanding how his mental illness shapes his relationship to his work and he's very clear that his depression gives rise to an addiction to work and that as one of his friends talks about it workaholicness workaholism is the last mm. socially acceptable yeah. addiction and Bourdain did talk about that like he talked about not being able to stop and he had there was that stuff in the updated kitchen confidential about like you know loving those or not loving maybe but like feeling the most at home in those like interstitial places of travel like sitting in a delta lounge somewhere which is really depersonalized mm-hmm. and that that you can kind of think about where, how, how much more at home could he have become with that kind of reflection? And it's interesting, this generational shift, um, yeah. to see that happen. Yeah. yeah. And you know, um, the, the pivotal moment I think in the book is, um, in chapter 15, it's a section called, it's a chapter called 35 about David Chang's 35th mm-hmm. year, which is, I think, professionally and personally was the low point for him. A lot was going on. His parents got sick. Some other stuff happened. And even in the text, it transitions from a straight narration to this performance of revision in the moment where he gives us both the thing he feels or did feel at the time, 
also, but right alongside in red text, what he understands is maybe the healthier way to think about it. And both are included, which I think is so fascinating and such an experiential truth of myself, I would say, where I still have the feelings I had about things that I know now were unhealthy or not the best way to proceed. And I have the new understanding, but my new understanding has not erased the feeling, you know, um, to use my own, to use my own stories, like my parents' divorce being, you know, one of the, you know, one of the pivotal moments in my life. The feeling I had then about it, and I won't get into the specific feelings, I know was not the most healthy, it wasn't adult, it wasn't whatever, and I have a better understanding and feeling now, but they exist side by side. One didn't, one didn't overwhelm and erase the other one. And I don't think I've ever seen it quite relayed like this, mm-hmm. where they both are allowed to be, and they're both acknowledged, and they're not equivalent, but th- they are different. And I thought it was the most exciting part of the, the entire book yeah. for me. And that was a great surprise for me because the it's just strikethrough text yes. in the digital galley, but seeing the strikethrough and then the change to mm-hmm. the red text in the hardcover copy, I was like, oh, this is what he's doing. And it did resonate a lot more getting to, uh, to actually see that on the page. And I think he does hold those contradictions so well. And as you were saying, like he holds them side by side as like this first feeling that I had about it will always be my first feeling, but yeah. we can also teach ourselves to then go to a, a second place mm-hmm. of reaction. And that's what so much of the back half of the book is about him learning to see himself in a new way and learning to like th- the first half of the book talks so much about how his whole identity and the, his whole career. And he really like attributes his success in large part to being driven by like conflict and resistance and mm-hmm. like you're not gonna come to the right answer unless you're hanging on by your fingernails and it's the last minute and, and like really needing that stress yeah, I guess, right. um to that, that that place of stress to drive any sense of productivity or any sense of creativity or like to like falsely create urgency mm-hmm. and that he comes to understand as he is older and his company is growing that people are working for him not because he's a great leader but they're working for him despite yeah, all the right. ways that he's a bad one <laughs> <That's right. laughs> and and how to know that like he's going to always want to fly into a rage when somebody does the wrong thing but how to like process that and acknowledge it internally and have a different outward response to it. And I think that's what we start to see when he's editing himself on the page like that. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the discomfort, I think the, the stuff I, uh, that tends to have turned me off in a very facile understanding of Chang before the book and really, you know, until very recently where I got a sense he was a more complicated and interesting figure than, than I thought. But you look at it like he went to Georgetown prep to play golf. I mean, is that a, is there a more <laughs> broy thing you could say? But then he's also torn out of and between cultures, even with his own, his own, his own, his, his quote unquote, his quote unquote, own quote unquote culture. Like all of those things are troubled and troubling mm-hmm. to him. Um, his relationship to his parents, his relationship to Koreanness, his relationship to Americanness, even within Korean Americans, he's like a big guy. You know, apparently he's, he feels mm-hmm. his physical body to be out of place, even among quote unquote, his people uh, of Korean Americans. So the sense of eternal, ongoing, and unreconciled displacement is very interesting. And the constant motion of the kitchen, the constant motion of Momofuko provides him a place to live in flux constantly that doesn't ever have to decide or doesn't ever have to not be he can't ever be out of place if he's never in a place is one way of thinking about it. Right. And I think that's one thing he's kind of, that's a dragon he's kind of chasing like right at the, mm-hmm. the highest moment of success where he could do kind of anything he wants. He chooses to move to Australia to open a restaurant in a casino. It's not self-sabotage, but it's hard not to see him always looking for a new displacement where that's a creative space for him, but it serves him differently. And only towards the end when he's married and he's got a kid and he's, He's passed on a lot of the torch and separated his own identity from Momofuko. Do we get a turn towards something like, I'd be loath to call it contentment, but at least mm. a, a productive stepping off place for the future? I don't know. How do you, how do you find this yeah. ending that, spoiler alerts, blah, 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 I guess we should say. <laughs> yeah, I, f- I feel like it's a very... Th- 
open possibility mm-hmm. for what the future will be for him and that there is like that he spent all of this time just coming to understand how he is and who he is now and settling into this life and sort of trying to have that contentment without having to chase the next fix basically like and he talks about that when he's addressing the workaholism like that part of an addiction to anything is having to up the ante in order to get your fix and there's a great line of like i used to want to learn how to juggle two balls Mm. now i'm tossing around motorcycles chainsaws and babies and like there's it's hard to go up from there or go down as it were and i think he you know has has found a lot of perspective Mm -hmm. um and some of the stuff that you know, you were saying like the facile sorts of things that we might have responded to about him before knowing more about him are, are things that I think he's also gained a lot of perspective on. And I appreciated that about the book that it's very honest. And he's like, here are a bunch of things that I've done yeah. and a lot of them aren't great. And so I understand why people don't like me in some capacities. And he talks about like him and Bourdain being on stage together, I think at the New Yorker <laughs> Festival. And the whole setup is they just want, like the organizers just want Chang and Bourdain to rant about things together. And Bourdain goes off on Alice Waters and Chang doesn't want to do that. So he's like, yeah, but down with San Francisco, like all those guys are doing is putting figs on a plate. And he like he, you know, it's this like big moment sort of makes the news in the food world at the time. And he sounds like a jerk. And he realizes a couple years later, like what the art was that those chefs were doing Mm -hmm. at the time and kind of has like, like he reckons with himself. And I feel like that's a lot of what we get to see here is him being like, here are the, here are the reasons as I have come to understand them, that I did those things that I did. And here's what I have come to understand about the consequences of that behavior. But there's no excuse making, uh, which I also really appreciate. Yeah, there's, there's no excuse making. It's always so hard to know with, with representations and narrations of addiction and mental health, mm-hmm. h- how I find it difficult to understand in the context of on the outside, which looks like bad behavior. I guess the raging may be the, the best example here, like treating people abominably, p- tre- treating people in a way in which a lawsuit wouldn't be unreasonable in a lot of cases in which you would say as on a very human ethical way, this is not how you treat anyone. I don't care what they're doing, who you are in any kind of a situation. And he kind of doesn't know what to do with it either, which I think is the only way to handle this. Like he has this thing in him. It comes out from time to time, even Mm -hmm. recent, even a recent past where he feels out of control. Right. And so we have to take him at his word, I think, even to know that his word is only that to us at this point. That he doesn't, he's like, it's almost a disassociative moment, not to, to, to tread on waters that I'm very, I know just enough to get myself into trouble a little bit about this, but like, he's not in control of his faculties, seemingly, then what do you do with that, right? I mean, I, I don't know then what to do with that, and neither does he, and ultimately, I think the book is comfortable, and the Sisyphean peach of the, of the, of the cover, I think, is, this is his peach to push uphill, yeah. and it's always rolling back, and is the peach his fault? I don't know. Is that he's in this place his fault? I don't know. Is gravity his fault? Probably not. But it's his peach to push, and he's always going to be pushing it. So I think one way that this is a modern kind of memoir is we're not on the other side of whatever the mountain is. And he doesn't ever feel like he's going to be on the other side of the mountain, which I thought was very, very interesting. Yeah, and I think think it's very honest, especially with a look at something as complicated as mental health and Mm -hmm. bipolar disorder. And the ways that he connects these things or sort of draws light lines between his childhood and where he is now. Like he says right up front in the book, I don't really want to have to talk about my childhood a lot, but you're supposed to like reveal the tea leaves that are going to portend the rest of the story. And he talks about this very difficult relationship with his father with a love that feels distinctly conditional. Mm. And he talks about it being a painful and demoralizing existence. And you know, like you can see him like working that out and replicating it at the same time right. um, in his other relationships and in his workplace. And that's that sense that he's out of control. Like he says at some point that he feels like he's a person to whom things were done. Yeah. Um, and what I think the like one of the notable things about the book is like he acknowledges just barely a lot of his accomplishments like this thing happened and this thing happened and we got two michelin stars and that filled me with dread and then we were opening a global empire and he doesn't make a big deal out of it and i 
have come to believe through the reading of this book that it's because it legitimately does not feel like his, like that mm. it doesn't feel like it's something that he has done that he can own, um, that it, you know, it talks about feeling out of control perpetually, but also has this sense that he's just a person to whom things are done. And the idea that this guy who like, he did go to a private school on a golf scholarship, but he was like perpetually reminded of his own inferiority. Like mm. this person who spent his life feeling inferior and demoralized can't like hold it in his hand and that he's accomplished all of these things and really believe it about himself. And it feels like he's reaching for that near the end of the mm. book and reaching for that. Like I have this family and can I find contentment and actually look at my life and be happy? Yeah. You know, and it's a common thing, right? Um, in, in studies of happiness too, that contentment often comes finally or firstly for people who are lucky when they find out, they realize they have it built into their source code that being in service of something other than them is usually mm -hmm. a better way of making yourself happy than trying to fill, as Johnny Ringo says, that hole in you that can never be filled up, right? There's, you can't ever really get enough accolades to say, if you have right. that feeling, you know, th that, that's a bottomless pit that you can shovel approval, accomplishments, award, money, drugs, sex, you know, whatever. There's a lot of things people try to shovel into that hole. But the thing, the only thing that fills it up is try not to fill it up and, and go build something mm -hmm. somewhere else. And even in all this time, even with all the success of the rest, even with all the building, right, his, his, the central metaphor of the cover is still this peach he's trying to hold up. Like, so there is a discomfort, I think, <laughs> and, built into what's going on here where, you know, to use the, uh, you know, probably the great, the most read memoir of our time and will be one of the most read memoirs of all time eventually is uh, Educated, right, by Tara Westover, mm -hmm. which is very much a retrospective. We don't get much of a sense of Tara Westover's life at the moment in which her pen starts to hit the page. Whereas I feel like we encounter Chang very much in process throughout and only with the last few keystrokes do we feel like we're at a new place. Whereas a, a classically a memoir like this, you would you would start out from an understanding that they're already in this new place. And I think that's very, very reflective of most people's experience. I don't mm -hmm. think most people, even the, the extremely successful or the kind that get multiple book deals, are like, you know what? I figured this shit out. I've got life right. by I've got life by the earlobe, <laughs> and now we're going to ride it into the sunset. You know, yeah, so the, that's those very refreshing. Write self help books, yeah, <laughs> and they're lying. You know, yeah, right, yeah. And he he talks, or maybe he's joking. I, but I would I would be willing to believe it as an earnest statement in the introduction that he's always seen the story of Sisyphus as an inspirational tale. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think there is something to that and to the kind of work that he's done in his life, but also to the age that he is and that like he could write another book in 20 years that's just this book like the exact same events yeah. of this book but with 20 years more of perspective right. on okay. it and be in new places but also the same places because that's the human condition yeah. right that's that like right. we each have our peach that we're pushing up the hill and maybe the hill looks different in different seasons or the peach changes shape mm -hmm. we understand the peach differently now i'm just torturing this metaphor yeah it's something about um, raising and harvesting peaches that are very large uh, apparently <laughs> i think is, is what it's about um where else do you want to go rebecca i mean i have a couple other specific things but um i think that captures kind of my general my general uh, overview yeah, that was, I mean, that covers most of it, yeah. um, most of what I had as well. And, you know, the the stuff that he does address about food and cooking culture is the kind of stuff that I want a powerful man in the food world to say about right. food and kitchen culture. Um, he talks about how, um, you know, like calmness and communication and like being sympathetic were never um, like traits that were valued in kitchens. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't quite go to the place of being like, you know, because these are also traits that toxic masculinity looks down <laughs> on and kitchen culture has a problem with that, but he's getting at it. Um, and he talks about the sort of conflicting sense that he's had that he never felt like he was the member of an in-group. He never felt like he was sitting at the cool kids' table or the cool chef's club. Um, but he did 
eventually, you know, get invited to these yeah. very exclusive events with these like very fancy, impressive chefs. And he was a member of this club, even if it didn't feel real to him. And what does that mean that he participated um, in these things? Uh, I also really liked where he placed his experiences and his career inside media culture looking at the shifts in especially food coverage as the internet became a thing and how his generation of chefs was the last one to exist you know before the democratization of food culture and how was that challenging and how did it benefit them um, to then have the internet become a thing and was a really interesting thing to to see him reflect on yeah where it's um you know, I guess there's a couple of generations and probably more of famous chefs, but like the generation before him is like the Wolfgang Pucks, right? Which, mm-hmm. or not him, but like that that model of celebrity chefdom or Emerald or something like that, where I guess it's sort of Puck than Emerald. Again, people know more about this than I do, but my understanding, like Puck did a bunch of different big fancy restaurants. Like you become a franchise, you become a brand, you become a, you know, a consultant kind of a person that oversees Restaurants. Well, Emerald has a TV show and brands, things like that. But it wasn't so much of a me. It was an empire, but not the kind of media representational. I am the product. Like that's an mm-hmm. Emerald kind of a thing. But Chang's Ugly Delicious and his podcast aren't real. I mean, they are about food, but you only like them if you like Chang, right? Which is yeah. a, a different way of understanding it. And that's where I think the celebrity in celebrity chef or celebrity food person becomes super important because 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 it com- becomes a kind of cult of personality rather than about the thing that the person makes it's the thing that the person is and wanting to be a part of that and have access to it um for someone who is uncomfortable with themselves would have its own complica- own <laughs> complexity right uh-huh. you know which is yeah. why i never understood my own appeal is a very interesting opening gambit and, and i guess i have to say it's it's I I'm very defensive. I'm only the defensive in memoirs when I feel the most sympathetic to the memoir because mm-hmm. I feel like the thing I need to remember is that this is all a performance too. This is a textual performance of something done for reasons that are that are at least in excess, even if not irrelevant, of my own feeling about my own relationship to the text, our own relationship to the text. A little unclear to me why do this book in some in some <laughs> regards, right? What is, what is the what is the 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 outcome? What is the what is the is this therapy? Is this the check was so large? Was it? Uh, I, I don't know. I found myself in that moment too. Is it is it is it act of generosity of some kind? I guess it could be all of those, but. I found myself very curious about yeah, what does I, Chang want from this, from us, from from Eat a Peach itself? Yeah, it seems to me like he's driven by feeling like he's in a position where he has to prove something. Yeah. And this is another thing to do to prove something. It's not juggling chainsaws and babies, but it's another challenge. And he even talks in the opening about like hesitating to write the book and maybe it could be a book of recipes uh-huh. <laughs> like do you actually want me to write a memoir what is there about my life and i i think he's just super conflicted between like some kind of awareness that his life is interesting and in some ways extraordinary and uncommon and that other like very deep feeling that like i i'm nothing and i don't matter and how to re- he's just, i think he's just wrestling with it yeah um, i I really liked that it is kind of counter to the typical chef narrative Absolutely. of like, like there's no, um, there's no Chang equivalent of Bourdain's childhood summers in France, eating oysters pulled fresh from the water and having a revelation, you know, like he even says up front, there was no romantic come to Jesus moment about mm. cooking, but I had at least found something I didn't hate doing. And that feels pretty honest to yeah. me here. Like he likes food, but he's been a terrible student. He couldn't get into Cordon Bleu, which he says everybody <laughs> right. gets into right. like at one point when he's in Japan and he's trying to learn Japanese, he gets scores of like two two and three out of 100 on his tests. Like he's just not used to achieving things. And I think he's trying to work it. I think he's telling us about how he's trying to work that out um, in, in all the parts of his career. But it was really interesting to have him sort of hang a lantern on like, 
this isn't really a book about why I love cooking and food and the world of kitchens. And I think he does love all of those things, but it never felt like, you know, like a divine calling to him to do this kind of work. And that's really different from what we get from most chef stories. Yeah. You know, cause it's, there's, there's a way in which the memoir, like you said, the juggling chainsaws, the memoir, the book itself is an indictment of the desire to juggle chainsaws. Mm -hmm. And yet if you look at his productive output of which this book is a part He's still juggling chainsaws. So can, is, it, is it possible to do the thing of, of actually being juggling chainsaws while saying, boy, you really shouldn't juggle chainsaws, <laughs> right? Like, I feel like that's like a, that's like a, that's like a, that's like a, that's a representational sleight of hand that yeah, is interesting in itself, but does it work? I, I don't really know. I find myself very interested in that. And I think it's also like, to me, it feels like a, you shouldn't juggle chainsaws, but what am I going to do if I'm not juggling yeah, chainsaws? Yeah, where are these like, chainsaws going to go if I don't juggle them? <laughs> right. Like, there's a, a line, like, pretty near the end of the book where he's listing out all of the things that have happened to him and the things that he's working on. And he says, most of the time, I feel like I'm barely holding on. Most of the time, and, in, in present tense. I marked that, too. That's yeah, what exactly. I did. It's present tense. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's that's exactly what my note said, too, is that present tense really matters right there. And I believe that that's true of him, like in every moment of his career and that it probably will continue to be true. Like the plate is seemingly as full as it can get, but he will continue to put things on it. Mm -hmm. And he's aware that at some point, like something will have to give and it will break. And it feels like that's what he's reaching for near the ending and trying to find a place of contentment where he doesn't need to keep adding chainsaws into the juggling act. But like but that's the thing he's always going to reach for is another chainsaw more work as a way to you know process or avoid mm. you know or just deal with the other pain in his life um and so that to me was interesting of like i should stop doing this but i can't stop doing this but i know that i should but i can't stop yeah, so here right. here are some more things that i'm doing up to and including this book you're reading right and, and i guess in, in some ways it is a real indictment um of the idea of control, you know, and there's several metaphors for the illusion of control, like the Sisyphus, like the mental health rage, like the juggling chainsaws, all of the, all of those, if you think of those as a spectrum, they have more or less agency, right? The juggling of chainsaw has probably the most agency. The, the, the rage, the disembodied rage has the least and the Sisyphus is in the middle. So not surprisingly, that becomes the central metaphor because it's kind of at the end of these poles of, you're, you're, you're wrestling your giant, to use the Emersonian. We carry our giant with us all, always. You can't let the giant win. On the other hand, you're never going to win. But you also can't lose. So you're stuck there. And does the recognition that you're stuck, that the recognition that that's what the task is, provide any kind of release? And I think we get just enough to not be despondent here, the idea that there's release. Yeah. But it's not salvation, right? It's not freedom <laughs> at its own in its own way. Yeah. And you know, he says when the restaurant gets the two Michelin stars and like and he gets asked, do they want to go for the third? Is that something that he hopes mm. will happen? That he feels this sense of dread because for many reasons, but one of them being that if you get the third star, which is as many stars as you can get, then your job is just about maintaining Holding the up the stars. peach. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like, what happens to a cook's motivation when the job becomes about maintenance and not improvement? But I feel like that's a question he's really asking yes. of himself and his whole life is what am I like, uh, can I exist in a place that's just maintaining what I've built and maintaining what I've done? And I and because he has talked so much about ha- needing that fire of like conflict and mm-hmm. resistance and urgency and like being just on the edge of everything going awry that. Like he, I think he's upping the ante um, in a way that maybe doesn't feel like he's in control of it. Yeah. But, but he's he also is in control of it, right? Like he has said yes to all of these things, um, whether from a place of like consciousness or not. I guess that's a, only he can really know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's super, right. It's super interesting. Super interesting. Watch it. Yeah, I think that's probably enough there. There's some good stuff about Alice Waters. I really liked yeah. his 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 indictment, but then come around. I think is an, mm-hmm. a, a nice encapsulation too of maturation and change but there is no final form um this isn't pokemon here where you're you know you get the, <laughs> the final last evolution which i think is probably one of the reasons both of us responded to like we did we like interesting messes both of us too yeah. because they feel um realistic 
Um, but there is a part of me too that recognizes this is work of multiple people produced for a reason, and it's it's engineered. I think you're you're often well suited to to realize that the thing you're reading, the more confessional it seems, the more <laughs> the more the text is trying to get you to believe it the more it's trying to get you to the believe it and trying to get you to the believe it, whether or not it's being truth, truthful or not. And, you know, I think in our own way, we have to wrestle with that, just like if Chang has to wrestle mm-hmm. with his own situation, like how much can mm-hmm. you actually know what the text is about? Um, but a very productive reading experience to me. I, I think it immediately jumps up into my first tier of favorite memoirs because of these issues, not because it's particularly great about, you know, reading about oysters on the, on the, right. the, the Burgundy, co- you know, Bur- or reading on, on, on Brittany, um, or, you know, the, the Proustian Madeline, which actually is probably, this is probably closer to the Proustian Madeline than the Bourdainian um, oyster, because the, the Changian Madeline is his leg getting broke, right, mm-hmm. in a go-kart, so a very different place um, to come from. But I, yeah, I think right away, it, it vaults to the to the you know the first tier of interesting and meaningful um, memoirs by chefs that I can think of genre you and I both really like. Do you agree with that, Rebecca? Mm-hmm. I think you do implicitly, but yeah, I totally, I, I totally do. Yeah. Um, and I think it stands alone as a as an interesting and messy, complex memoir, just in the category of memoirs. Yeah. You know, not even uh, as a food memoir for those reasons. Like Chang is, and any memoirist, as you were saying, like is trying to do something with the story that they tell, and he is certainly trying to do something here with his co-writers and and what he chooses to tell us and how he chooses to do it. And sitting with my own responses to that was really yeah. interesting. Yeah. Um, and sitting with sort of modifying my mental model of David Chang as I went and like relating to some of the stuff that he talks about, like, you know, seeking elevation through endeavor and working towards something. I was like, yeah, I get it. But also like, you're going to, you're going to die. You're going to work yourself to death. Like slow down. Um, Just such a, for whatever it's trying to do, it was very effective on me. Yeah. Agree. (laughs) Agree. Well, thanks Rebecca for, being part of the feedback loop and then uh, agreeing that it's something that's worth talking about uh, for a little while longer. I do think it's going to be hard to read a more straight-ahead chef memoir. Like, if I had read this before Burn the Place, which is a book I really liked, hmm. I, I would have felt, you know, I want a little bit more on my plate, I guess, to some degree. The the kinds of wrestling I see Chang doing, I guess, maybe in talking about that on the summer reading show, maybe what I was was trying to articulate is a little bit of what's going on here. And she's writing new books, so maybe she'll read this and other people will and say, oh, this is a new area of what's possible, much like what Chang has done with food. Maybe he's done with the idea of the chef memoir itself, frankly. Yeah, I I hope so. I think it... It's a level up of what we can, uh, what I hope that we can come to expect from the chef memoir. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read. And I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. Taming Seven is an epic and unforgettable love story in the international bestselling and TikTok phenomenon, The Boys of Tom and series from Chloe Walsh. So Tommen's cheekiest lad, Jared Gibsey Gibson, has always been a comedian, but inside he is haunted by events of the past and he uses humor to cope, hiding his true self from the world. Then you have Claire Biggs, who is the epitome of sunshine. She's always loved Gibsy, her brother's friend and her favorite neighbor. She also has always seen a side to him that no one else seems to notice, and she becomes determined to tame her wild at heart childhood best friend. 
So The Boys of Tommen series is an internationally best-selling YA romance series that has taken TikTok by storm. It's perfect for readers looking for new adult slash crossover romance, dual point of views, friends to lovers, marathon worthy TikTok books, and angsty tear jerkers. Taming Seven is published today and it's the fifth book in the series. So make sure to check it out. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. All right, as promised, Jen Northington has joined me to talk about the Dune trailer. We were just saying that we're going to try to keep this relatively brief and try to restrict it to salient points about the trailer because we could get into the Dune sand hole, wormhole, however else you want to say this really (laughs) easily. And there might be a time and place for that right before the movie comes out to talk about the book and then talk about the movie. But right now... There's been a lot of talk about it. We've got dribs and drabs of Dune news, um, really up until screen caps of like production photos. But the trailer's the thing, wherein we get the aesthetic and the feel, I think, in a real way. And Jen, um, what did you think? Was your uh, reaction positive? It's what you expected? Was there anything you were surprised by? Where do you want to go? Yeah, I have two competing feelings about this, which, you know... In the world of now, like, conflicting emotions are just how we live. Um, so so my first feeling, like, is this looks like it's going to be a fun movie. Mm-hmm. It, uh, it is very beautifully shot, clearly. And it's got a cast that has some acting chops. And it looks like they've put it together in interesting ways. So I like I I found the trailer to be very it's three minutes long, which feels really long Mm. to me. I don't know if that's just me, but um, it was it was very watchable. What what was your first impression? Yeah, I think it is really it's really beautiful. Like um, the dune of my memory uh, of reading it is not really the aesthetic of this dune. And it's more along the lines of the. The, the Lynchian Dune, which is the Tatooine, right? The really bright mm. sun, unbearably hot kind of Dune. And I think that's where my first thought, it's an interesting choice. And frankly, where I live right now, this overcast, toxic air mm. haze vibe of Dune, it's like a climate change Dune, almost yeah. in a way, where you know my, brain, my memory of it is like the overwhelming heat and dryness because you need the re... I don't even remember. It's been a while since the respirators, things you got to wear in your nose, and you right. can't even be outside for that long. I guess it doesn't feel as oppressive as that kind of a Dune of my memory, but I think, I think that's just different. It's not good or bad. It's just a different kind of a take on it, which makes sense because you know, I'm sure the Dune heads, when Star Wars came out in 1977, they look at Tatooine and this Dune, like, oh, I see where you got this. So it's nice to have a different spin on this like space desert planet, which is weirdly a sci-fi trope at this point, largely yes. and ex- almost exclusively because of Dune, but Star Wars and others that followed on. So this hazy, sort of polluted dry desert planet I thought was a really interesting touch. And I also think it suits... Um, uh, Villeneuve's aesthetic, which is like 2001 A Sand Odyssey, like these big monolithic (laughs) sort of big primary colors and slowness and really beautiful. Um, It's just different. So I I like the differenceness of it. I don't have too much, I don't have any concerns really about the production value design choices. I guess that's not where my concern or interest about how it's going to turn out really lies, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. I I actually I wanted to reference there I was poking around a little bit in prep for recording mm-hmm. this and there's a really hilarious uh, Dune trailer explained by someone who doesn't know anything about Dune <laughs> on the Mary Sue that I will will leave a link yes, to it in the great. show notes. It's worth reading and there's a nice Tatooine shout out in it. Um, totally. <laughs> I, I laughed a lot. I, I do wonder about people that don't have any little if any understanding of dune make any sense of that trailer is it do you just get a vibe from that trailer do you have any sense of the plot i don't think again it's very plotty uh dune you know it's like game of thrones level of uh, political machinations and family politics and where they intersect and trade anytime you get into banking and trade you know you're deep down the world building um uh complexity but right. I don't know. I'd be curious to hear. You could email us at podcast at bookride.com. If you haven't ever, if you don't have any exposure to doing and you saw the trailer, what were you picking up on there? Can we yeah. talk about casting? Do you have a, it's been a while. Ooh. Do you have a favorite Dune character of the book that you're especially uh, excited to see? Or where, where do you want to go in terms of the faces that we're seeing on the screen? 
Yeah, this is where my really conflicted emotions mm. happen. So I was happy to see like Zendaya and Jason mm-hmm. Momoa and I. Oscar Isaac and these other actors of color, you know, appearing in like a big, giant, expensive, fancy production Mm -hmm. like this. However, I have to like reference the criticism that has been made, which is that this is a a story inspired by the Middle East. It, It was filmed partly in the Middle East and it contains no actors of Middle East or North African descent in the main cast. So they did diversity. They just didn't do it as thoughtfully as they could have, which is a thing that I think needs to be acknowledged, mm-hmm. um, which is not to take anything away from the actors who are involved. It's just a choice that the casting, you know, that the casting directors made. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think we all know the reasons like these are bankable Hollywood stars already. Mm-hmm. But it's not that there's not talent or people who could have taken those roles and been a little bit more uh, true to the source material, shall yeah. we say. Now, Frank Herbert was already, you know, appropriating all over the place. So there's there's a whole discussion around that. And there's some good, uh, thoughtful pieces on this that I have links for that we'll also mm-hmm. I'll, I'll send along. Um, but so... Yeah, I I will say that my favorite casting choice, with the acknowledgement that this, again, is still not truly representative, is that Liet Kynes was yeah. always a really interesting character to me. And you don't see that character in the trailer at all, for the record. Right. Um, but they have cast that character. In the book, he is like a like European standard man. Mm-hmm. And in the movie, they have cast that role as a black woman, which is super exciting yeah. to me. Um, and I can't wait to see how uh, that looks on, on screen. Yeah. So yeah, that's maybe the, maybe the casting I'm most excited about next to Oscar Isaac as Duke Lido. <laughs> right. Yeah. He <laughs> looks, great. he looks great. He looks really he great. That beard and the whole thing oh. is looking really good. They got that. They got people who could stare into, into yeah. Dune. They got all those people, right? It is interesting. The The point about the, Diversity of casting, but also not thinking about the trajectory or sort of the angle of inclusion is really interesting because it feels like we're getting into a mode where we have different waves of understanding about what representation looks like. And this feels like a second wave representation. It's like, okay, well, they're not all white people. Great. But is it, you know, our current best understanding of how we want the stories to be represented knowing this is a science fiction story so it isn't a real planet yeah. but inspired by real places shot in real spaces acted by real people I think that's going to be something that if this becomes a franchise which everyone I think hopes that it does hopes that it does well especially on the studio side um, maybe they could take some of that criticism and you know feedback to heart for future castings and the way yeah. they look about it too you know the thing that caught me again is again it's a 1965 novel it's hard to take it out of its time you know, how are they going to deal with what Dune does with the native peoples of Arrakis? How Zendaya right. and Talame is this sort of white savior? My memory of Dune, at least, though, is it does problematize or it has consequence that um, Paul is a savior figure with special powers. It's not all Luke Skywalker mm-hmm. and, and Harry Potter where it's just get the savior into the right position. He'll do it. Like, there's blowback, has wide consequences, and really not to spoil anything, but launches, those complications launch forward out of Dune into the into the future things going on. So I'll be very curious to see how that, I couldn't, I was just, Rebecca and I just did The Prince's Bride and we were doing some recasting stuff, like who would you do? And yeah. I really wanted to see Zendaya as either Indigo Montoya or the Man in Black in A Modern Princess <laughs> Bride because I feel like she can kind of do anything. I, I think she's yeah. remarkable. I kind of wanted, I kind of, there's a version of this where I kind of wish she was Paul and Chalamet oh, was hundred percent. You know, like just move it around a little bit because it doesn't have to be. The dynamics could be different, but same, right? I guess. I, I guess I yeah. just like. Could we do that? That would be a little even more exciting because I'm excited for this. I should say, but that would yes. be even more interesting to me to think about that. You know, I read a while back a really fascinating piece on gender mm. in Dune that I will try to dig up because it speaks to not the movie, but this point about the gender of the 
Kwisatz Hadrak, mm-hmm. uh, which is what Paul is. Um, spoiler! spoiler. Uh, yeah. But yeah, it, it's very interesting. And it gets into some interesting territory about the male and female binary as it's portrayed in the Dune books. Uh, but yeah, I would, I mean, there's all kinds of things you could do with this material. And, you know, I don't think, honestly, I mean, we'll see what happens if this turns into a franchise. But Dune feels to me like... This is just one of, mm. we, we will get other adaptations. People will do other things with this. Yeah. I feel pretty confident. Yeah. I mean, it took a while for this one to happen. But now that the technology is around to like, yeah. you know, you don't have to use puppets for the sandworms. Right. Uh, there's some interesting opportunities. And, and I would bet money that maybe not like as frequently as certain other things get remade. Like it's not going to be Jane Austen, right? We're not going to get a mm-hmm. new one every other year. But I would bet we get more than another one. Yeah. So. I would like to see a few in a series. Um, I think yeah. there, it, has, it has that thing that a lot of people liked about Game of Thrones of the deep history and the complicated, yeah. like almost soapiness to the personal mm-hmm. interactions. And soapiness, I don't mean that as a drug. I just mean like it's very rich in terms of it's it's space and mining, but it's also dad and mom and sis and that kind of stuff right, um, right. going on as well. Speaking of, that was my biggest sad about the trailer is where's Lady Jessica? Like, I think we get one shot of her for half a second yeah, and she's not saying anything. Very <laughs> little is of that. Where is she? Yeah. And Rebecca Ferguson is so great, too. She that, is. Um, that's yeah. going to be really exciting to see. I, I think... I was glad to see, you know, there is a sort of like, to to Villeneuve, um, like, you know, Arrival is a movie we both like, you know, I I really like Blade Runner 2049, but there's a certain like, it's not art house, it's like, it feels like you're in the Metropolitan Museum of Art when you're watching a villain, like it's very clean Mm. and clear and like blocked out and like the canvas quality of it can Mm -hmm. be deadening in a way and sometimes the material itself is deadening certainly Blade Runner but I Momoa is such a ray of light in this or or a a, a sprig of water but like his big old smile and he comes and he gets the one sort of like joyful kind of moment so I would like to see yeah. that counter programming that thing that Momoa does so well in addition to being a, a nice looking fella but he has a a jovialness that mm-hmm. is almost irrepressible and I, and I and it looked like it was a it's a savvy move to to sprinkle a little bit of that in, because otherwise it is a, an arid, beautiful landscape in a lot of different ways, or can be seen right. that way, especially with Villeneuve's um, aesthetic going into it there. I mean, the murderer's row, Javier Bardem, is still gar, still in Sarsgaard, you see as uh, Baron Harkonnen, like only from like a profile for a second. If you didn't know to look for him, you wouldn't know it was yeah. there, but you're going to see a lot of him. Um, yeah, I think the, the Zendaya portrayal, she just looks great. She just always looks great in these situations with the hair going yep. all over the place and everything going on. We didn't see Dr. Um, I don't know how to say his last name. I've never heard it said out loud, but the character um, played by Chen Cheng here, Dr. Wellington Yu, I believe, or Ye, I can't right. why Y U E H. I kind of looked for a pronunciation. I couldn't find it. Becomes an important character. We have one quick shot there. Um, I don't know. You know, Oscar as Duke uh, Lido Atreides, um, Chalamet as Paul. Momoa, Batista as the Beast, they all look great. You know, I guess it could do without another Josh Brolin as a mentor tough guy, you know? I guess I feel like I've been there, done that, but... My memory is Gurney Halleck's role isn't huge in in the book. I don't remember. Do you remember better uh, than I do? It's it's consistently supporting yeah. is how I want to put it. Right, yeah. Right. Um, okay. Anything else? How, okay. The I, the the big one they saved for the end. It's the stinger, the worm. Right. Important, right? I mean, it's the beast. Yeah. It's it's the thing outside of the f- fear is the mind killer and the hand yeah. box of pain. I think the worm is the next biggest sort of uh, meme coming out of Dune in, in most people's yes. minds. What do you think of the worm? It's it, the scale feels appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's what I think. I mean, you just get the one shot. So like all of the, you know, sand writing, I'm super curious because that, I mean, it's going to be mm-hmm. real interesting to see what that looks like on screen because the scale is ridiculous yeah. Uh, yeah. in the books and it appears that they have picked up on that. But I, yeah, super, super curious to see what that ends up looking like. So I'm I'm withholding feelings about the worms <laughs> until future notice. I'm a, it's tough with monsters. Of, you know, I'm not a huge monster guy. Like, that's not a thing. I'm not like a huge King Kong Godzilla. I, I'm not here for the monsters generally when it comes to stuff like that mm. because there's like, you know how there's that uncanny valley between something looking fake, you know, real, real fake, or it's like cartoon, cartoon, too real, but not real enough, and then real. 
There's something yeah. about scale of monsters where you have to get it just right where it feels like a threat without feeling like the weather, if that makes right. sense, you know, that it right. actually is an organic thing that you can have a relationship with and not just a sort of flesh earthquake, which I think, you know, like <laughs> tremors or something else like that, which I think is also a dune, uh, an air of dune in a lot of different particular ways. It's like, I think it's hard to do. Is it actually something where the relationship of the characters and the stakes feel... I don't know, in scale, even as the scale gets pretty large. It's it's huge, and the CGI is wonderful, and only now could you do something really that huge um, without it being ridiculous or you know, yeah. not a cartoon or something else like that. Um, yeah. But anyway, okay, any another th- last notes as we – big questions going into it. I guess probably like I, I I'm just guessing, we're not going to be there in theaters on December 20, or whatever, when it's coming. I, it's so sad that – my first experience of this will not be in a giant theater. I just can't imagine I'm going to be in a theater for this if this really yeah. is coming out then. No, I, 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 I can't imagine that yeah. I will be. Um, I, you know, I don't know. I don't know. What? <laughs> I'm, I, I feel okay about it. Okay. I, that's not, I feel okay about that. I'm, I guess at this point I'm just so used to watching things on my home that's great point. system. That's that it's uh it doesn't it doesn't phase me. I I do want to just briefly if if it's okay give sure. a shout out to the episode of SFF. Yeah, we did uh back when the casting was first being announced. Mm. Um we had uh the excellent writer Asma Zehanat Khan come on and talk about Dune and her really fascinating and kind of hilarious relationship with it. Um and <laughs> and her thoughts on the on the on the casting and on the adaptation. So, you know, it's, it was, it was what we knew at the time, but it's, it's, I think it's still worth a listen because her context is great. Yeah. We'll put that in the show notes. You can always find Jen and Sharifa on SFF. Yeah. Um, talk about science fiction and fantasy. Is Sharifa a Dune person? Sharifa is not a Dune mm. person, but I will say also because you brought it up, we are going to do an episode on Arrival very ah, soon. Yes. So uh, keep an eye out for that. That sounds great. Jen, thanks so much. We'll catch you somewhere out there um, on the Spice Harvester. <laughs> Thank you.